Am I wrong to say Luke is a tanky, right? That's the <laughs> idea. <laughs> Luke is a tanky. Yeah. And, and- Welcome. Welcome to another episode of Redwood, where today we're going to talk about the 2006 film Children of Men, directed by Alfonso Cuaron. I'm John, and I'm here with Gabo. Hey, everybody. And Davis. What's up? All right. So Gabo's going to start off with his take on Children of Men. Okay, yeah. Pressure's on me to, to give a good take. <laughs> you know, I think this might be a common theme as we keep recording this podcast, where when we're evaluating the merit of a film, we are on one hand looking at films that we like because we prefer it to what is so often coming out of Hollywood, like a superhero movie or, you know, the typical rom-coms. And so any film that deals with issues that are, are otherwise largely ignored, I think we prefer those issues to, to be front and center. So when a movie like Parasite, a movie like Sorry to Bother You, a movie like Children of Men uh, come out, it, it's very exciting and it's, and we kind of jump on that, like, oh, this is really cool. And so that, that's that I kind of put Children of Men in that category where I have to say that I, I do really like it for a number of reasons. But if we're going to look at it critically and we're going to talk about the politics of a film, I have, I have a number of issues with it. And I think it's great that we have you here, John, to talk about this film as an immigration historian, because it starts off telling us that this world crisis has uh, created World War II style um, camps for, immig- for immigrants to come into Britain and, and no one's coming out. And I think what that is missing from that is why those immigrants are there. And we know in real life that that's because of Britain, the United States, their actions and the actions of their businesses in the third world. And I feel like that was just completely missing in this film. That's often held up as a great take on, on xenophobia and the way immigrants are, are treated in our society. And I think when, if it's, when it's missing that, it really can't be held up as that gold standard of political analysis. It might be a gold standard film for cinematography or for so many other reasons, but I, I don't think it really deals with this with the topic of immigration well because it doesn't look at the root causes. And I also d- don't like how the they deal with the issue of terrorism and and resistance to to oppression. But that that's the resistance to oppression and terrorism is kind of a, a separate issue that we can talk about more later. But I feel like I've already been talking a lot. And John, I want to hear your takes of the way immigration is depicted in this film as an immigration historian. Overall, I like the film, and overall. I would recommend the film, and I think we should be watching it and discussing it. And I'm a fan of Alfonso Cuaron. He's given us a lot of great films. Order of Men is a is a great film, and given some of its political implications, it's also one of those films that can be read in a very radical way, and that is an accomplishment. He also gives us that Netflix film, Roma. I'm not sure if either of you have seen that. Yeah, Roma's my favorite of his. So you like that film? Yeah, I loved Roma. I thought Roma was beautiful. It's a very powerful film. And Children of Men is also a powerful film. And as Gabe is saying, it's dealing with a number of really horrific topics that many mainstream films shy away from. For example, it's depicting this 20, is it 2027? Is that when it's supposed to be taking place? Yeah. Uh, That's not too far away from our current current present. I mean, it's... It's uh, 2027 looks like it's around the corner. And when it was released back in 2006, 2027 felt a long way away. And yet in many parts of the globe, 
and in even our own country here, we're seeing so many things that I see in this film. And that is really disturbing. But I think that's also why the film is so important to watch right now, given everything that we're experiencing. And so the film does, it does examine immigrants, refugees, or as they're called in the film, Fujis. And it does show us how they're being brutalized and mistreated. But as Gabe's pointing out, in typical liberal fashion, you're really not given an analysis that explains why there are refugees in England to begin with. You're not given that, but you're given images of the brutality and you see that the state, that the British government is acting in a fascistic way. And so there's a criticism there of the state. There's a criticism of the government and of the right. But the film also, like many of Cuaron's films, offers us implied criticisms of the left. And that's what makes the film complex. But I think that's why a film like this is acceptable to Hollywood, acceptable to the mainstream, when you provide us with a very negative portrayal of the left, of in this movie, of the fishes. So when you depict the left as a left that you can't trust, as a movement that may be just as problematic as the right, that is acceptable to the liberal status quo, which often conflates the left and the right in their analysis. Because from the status quo of liberals, the left and the right are seeking revolution, and therefore they're both problematic because the status quo is what liberals consistently defend. And that leaves us in a cynical place. That leaves us in a hopeless place. And if I recall, I haven't seen Roma in some time, but if I recall, Roma wasn't too different in the sense that I don't feel hopeful, at, the, at that hopeful at the end of this movie. Now, it is true that the human project shows up at the end, and therefore it could have been an even bleaker ending if we would have just seen Key, Claire Hope, Ashley just floating in that little boat in the middle of the ocean, if she would have just been left there because there actually was no human project. That would have been, of yeah. course, even a bleaker ending. Of course, <laughs> that would have been horrific. I would have, I would have said, why the hell did I watch this film? And so I, I'm glad Cuaron, as the director and also one of the co-writers of the film, did not choose to do that. And that's wonderful. That's good that he's leaving us with some hope. So I don't want to go too far in what I'm suggesting there about the left. But nevertheless, that's there. And we're going to talk about that, I assume, a little bit more as we go on. I, I, I have a lot to respond to what you just uh, said, John, about this film. But but first, I want to hear what Davis's take is about it. So I, I definitely think that this is a movie about immigration and about the stuff that is visible on the surface. But after I was watching, I was just sort of wondering, like, what is this movie actually about? Is this what would happen if people just stopped having children? I think maybe so. Not having children would definitely lead some people into a major existential crisis and that that might cause some sort of extreme breakdown. But I think more than that, this movie is actually an allegory for global warming and climate crisis. Theo works at the Department of Energy and he has been this activist for, for decades, but now has sort of has sort of sold out and, and gotten a government job. And, and the timeline may be a little accelerated. I hope that we're not going to be at this point in 2027. But I do think the movie basically depicts the way that we will first encounter the effects of climate change in the first world, in, in the West, which is as long as we live in a world that has artificial boundaries, there will be people desperate to cross those boundaries as a result of global warming. And so to me, it, it's basically like showing the, the effects of this desperate mass migration that climate change has caused, 
And you know, then I, I basically see the, the child, Key's child, as a solution, a, a possible answer to climate change that has finally become clear after all of this time and after this major breakdown in social structures. And then basically the way that different groups try to claim that for themselves and put it to political purposes. So I, I do think the critique of the left is still there. And I, I think it's, I think it's kind of disappointing. Although I will say, the people that are ultimately the most successful, their their home, in the refugee camp, is full of Soviet memorabilia and images of Lenin. Yeah, so, the Lenin. So maybe maybe that's a little bit of commentary there. Amazing. But anyway, that that's that's kind of what I ultimately read into it. Did you all see that at all? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think we're beginning to see it now with the effects of climate change already beginning to feel. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't think we will be quite at this stage depicted by this movie within six years, but I, I don't think the immigration and the crisis that will come about as a result of desperate refugees attempting to get into countries with very restrictive immigration policies. I, I don't think that that part is is actually that far off. Well, it's interesting you say that, Davis, because one thought that I was having while watching The Children of Men is this idea of it being kind of prophetic. And I know I, I said the same thing about uh, Syriana last week, but then the more I thought about it, I thought these movies aren't really intending to talk about the future. That's not what... I think they're talking about a very real and terrifying present, which I, I think is another way that it often gets read in a like I saw, I saw a bunch of reviews looking up for Children of Men saying, wow, boy, this movie really became prescient when, when Donald Trump was elected president on January 20th, 2016. It's like, no, this movie is extremely relevant when <laughs> Barack Obama deported more immigrants than anybody else uh, ever, ever has before. And I think it's, it's true in other ways. Like one thing that I will say that's very, I think this movie does well is kind of depict the day-to-day life of living in an apartheid-like society, which in a lot of ways already exists in many parts of the world. You can pick like the favelas of Brazil to Israel and Palestine, San Francisco, New York. That, that dynamic already exists, but that's not taken away from the fact that it will exist more and more <laughs> as time goes on if we, if we don't do something about it. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. Actually, that was another part of the the climate connection that I think is is present is that when he goes to when he you know crosses that that boundary going to his cousin's house and all of a sudden it turns from this like dystopian gray landscape to like a beautiful green park and then you know his his cousin is just living a life of luxury and i think that that is obviously that's that's present in our own world right now but i think that will only become increasingly exaggerated as the climate crisis worsens and you have people who are basically doing just like the cousin you know when theo asks he says you know what it is theo i just don't think about it that's his answer to how he keeps on going and how he deals with that extreme guilt that must come from living that sort of life while all of these people around him are miserable and are going through a basic struggle to survive every day. That really stood out to me in the film, the way Coron can show us the way people are all living in this dystopia, as Gabe implied, our current present. (laughs) 
how people are living in a dystopia, but can rationalize their existence in it. As Davis, as you pointed out, you have this elite cousin who seems to be making his money by preserving elite European art. And he's living in this tower of some kind, the way any multimillionaire billionaire lives while the climate goes to hell, while children are in cages, while brutality is going on all around us, while we're all dying in a pandemic. The question we might ask, how do you live with yourself? And his answer, the way he responds, it's so powerful. Like, Just don't think about it. To think about it is too much. How can you think about that? The same could be said for our very present. How do we live in a society where millions of people right now are losing their homes and unemployment is skyrocketing while billionaires are becoming richer and the poor are becoming poor? Well, we just don't think too much about it. And I think that was really nicely paralleled with the, shoot, I, I forget, I'm forgetting the name. Um, Michael K Jasper? Yeah, Jasper. Yeah. So, I told Elizabeth uh, that I plan on being Jasper by 2027. Within six years, I'm going to, I'm going to look and act like Jasper. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but, but basically there's people invested in preserving the status quo who benefit from it, who are able to rationalize that and live comfortably by just not thinking about it. Okay. So there's where Theo's cousin falls, but then you have just normal people. They're not invested in the status quo. They're, they're morally outraged by it. But when he is presented with the chance to step in and make a difference, he takes it. And really, I think that's what we can hope from a lot of people, whether you know it be a teacher or a nurse or anybody who's not directly suffering the worst that our society has to offer, but is just kind of going about their lives. When they're presented with a, a chance to help an immigrant family or give somebody, you know, a second chance. Now, that's obviously not what Jasper did, which is like a kamikaze style, but the, you know, the, the equivalent in, in our own lives, I think is nice. You know, can I jump in there? Because I read Jasper differently because I saw this movie years and years ago. And so I watched it in a very particular way, looking for things that I wouldn't have caught the first time I saw it. Jasper is a cartoonist. When you see the types of cartoons that he produced, they're political cartoons. Right. And his wife, she's a political photojournalist. Oh, no, I missed been that. tortured. And at one point, there's like a, a news clipping that conveys that MI5, which is the equivalent of yeah. Great Britain's CIA, may have been involved in torturing her. And therefore, she's catatonic. So Jasper is an incredibly political person, but he's old. He's what we might call what people are calling today an elder. Yeah. So Jasper <laughs> is an elder who was an activist in his day and still stays intellectually connected with things that are happening, but is taking care of his wife, who's been made catatonic for her political activism. And we know that he makes his money by selling weed right. to, of all people, a corrupt immigration agent. And he probably sells weed to other people. He's smoking weed, selling weed. And so what I gathered from him is this is an elder who has devoted his life to these kinds of causes. But like many elders, he's tired. He's exhausted, and yet he's managing to keep his smile, his humanity, his heart. And when he sees that baby, and when he sees he can devote his last breath right. for this cause, he's going to do it. And he ends up euthanizing his wife and his dog yep. uh, because he knows they're not going to survive this encounter with the quote-unquote left of the film, the, the fishes. And so he goes and he confronts them and antagonizes them, and he commits a kind of suicide via antagonizing 
the fishes. My read of him is that what he did there at the end is consistent with his life. And so what I also see there is that, that you have these layers of the left within the fishes. You have Julianne Moore, then you have Luke, she would tell EGO4, and there's a divide there. It's almost like the Stalin-Trotsky divide, this divide that gets played out with the assassination of Julie. And then you have elders like Michael Caine. And then you have people who have turned more cynical like Theo, but you see that his cynicism derives from a place of experiencing incredible pain. So he didn't just give up on the left, he gave up on himself. And as he's given up on himself, he's spiraling into a very cynical place, but yet he too is animated by the possibility of the birth of this new baby. I, I really thought the the beauty of the film was in each of these characters that maybe didn't have didn't have the most direct path to their their final role or took a winding road to get there. Some of them, like Miriam, who is to me incredibly annoying. I I, th I think there's nothing worse than people saying everything happens for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> God works in mysterious she ways. Was awful in terms of, I don't know, telling, telling people that have just had somebody important die to them that it happened for a reason is not a good idea. But she clearly had devoted a large part of her life to this Fuji cause. And then ultimately she gave, she sacrificed herself to keep keep the baby moving in the right direction. Theo is the final example of that, but but there are so many characters who fill that that role that we're talking about with Jasper, where when the time comes where it's do or die, they do end up doing what needs to be done to support the future. And and I think that part of it is is really beautiful and optimistic. I, I agree that is the beauty of the film. No matter where you are, no matter how removed you are from the movement, you can have that moment where you see the proverbial baby and make an immediate difference in whatever, in whatever injustice exists on a macro level, but you are now witnessing or experiencing it on a micro level in your own life. But I don't want that very real beauty of it to take away from I basically I'm saying I want to also talk about the problems with the film. What you just said remind me of is that we are depicting various shades of the left and we can agree and disagree with those. But to me, it's not just like a critique of the left when the main antagonist of the film is the left. I, I thought it was almost comical where people hear a baby crying and all the soldiers just stop shooting. I mean, this is basically the Kendall Jenner Pepsi commercial in a movie that people think is like amazing sociopolitical commentary. I understand it's it's like a different world where no no babies exist, but I have very little faith in the armed forces of the most powerful countries in the world to be struck with sudden uh, <laughs> senses of humanity, no no matter the context. So I, I thought that I, I kind of. I kind of interpreted that. At, oh, go ahead, John. I was going to address that as well, but I was going to address what you previously said about the midwife, about Miriam. Oh, do, do it, do it. So why don't I comment on both of those? And then, Davis, I want to hear your comment because I have a feeling you might build on what I say regarding yeah. Gabe's uh, commentary there or about the scene where Key's baby, baby Dylan starts to cry, the way everybody reacts and the way it stops the government siege of the apartment complex where a number of ordinary people, a number of refugees and 
activists in the fish's movement are engaging the military. But first, if we step back to Miriam, see, and this is where I think Quaron is very sophisticated. There are these nuances to this entire film. What I felt he was showing us with Miriam, I love that character, <laughs> unlike like Davis. And what I loved about her was I thought that was Quaron speaking to us about tendencies. And he was showing us that you can come from many places and be a part of a left radical movement because she's clearly the spiritualist in the film. And when she talks about her own background, she was a, a midwife in a hospital when all of the infertility started happening. So she experienced emotionally what it meant for all these women who she's helping this incredible, beautiful transition to watch them all be unable to have children. She was with them. And it seems to me if she wasn't spiritual before, she became even more spiritual. And yet she's throwing down with the militant fishes. I think Barone is showing us that the left can incorporate people from different tendencies. It would have been very problematic if he would have depicted everybody in the left as he depicts Luke. Right. Or if he would have depicted everybody in the left as he depicted Julian. I think Quaron here is trying to show us there's a variety of perspectives that you can come from to be a part of a left movement. And I think he's right about that. And that's why I liked that character a lot. But it's also interesting that I reacted so differently to what Gabe, what you described as uh, like a Kendall Jenner kind of moment, because I was really emotionally moved by that scene. For me, what I saw was at this point, it's like a 20 year infertility period. You go 20 years with not knowing why it is humans can no longer produce. You can imagine the way people on the religious right are gonna interpret that. We can imagine the way liberals are gonna interpret that, the way so many people are going to be demoralized and God knows how much of a right-wing direction society is going to go, as depicted in the film. It shows a fascist-like society, in part as a consequence of the infertility crisis. So here you have a moment where everybody sees that a baby exists when they're not supposed to. And it's, everybody's in shock. Everybody can't believe that they're seeing a baby after 20 years. And that of all people, it's a black woman with a baby. It's a Fuji with a baby. So there's all that wrapped up in that. And it's, to me, it was very, very powerful to see everybody freeze. And I took a lot from that scene where that soldier goes, stop shooting. His rational brain kicks in. He sees this baby. That, that was very, very powerful to me. But it seems you reacted to it so differently. The reason that I think I reacted to it differently is I think the way to tell this kind of story is with the government and its armed forces being the principal enemy, bad guy, whatever you want to call it. And I thought it was interesting that you spend most of the movie showing these lefties as these bad guy terrorists. And then finally, when the military, the ones actually enforcing this dystopia, when they show up, their screen time is dedicated to this moment where they're struck with the sense of humanity. I mean, it can be powerful. It, it can be a lot of things. I just wanted to point out that contrast of an hour or, or however long is spent. Look how awful the resistance is. The military shows up. Oh, they can be pretty cool sometimes. I, I, I really, I, I, I interpreted it very differently. I mean, much more, much more in line with John, but I, I think this movie takes as its starting point that the state is a nightmare and that there are a lot of right-wing organizations and people that are unredeemable, basically. I think, I think that's the absolute starting point of the movie. And then the movie focuses on the different versions of a left because they're the only ones that, that it's actually interested in, in saying anything about, because they're the only ones that 
that are really up for debate. And and then I think I think the power of that moment is actually in the fact is is in just what you're talking about, Gabe, the sense that these people, their humanity overcomes their their connection to these you know, state apparatuses of terror and violence and all of that oppression. Basically, their their humanity overtakes that, if only briefly. And I, I think I think that is a powerful message because I think that like ultimately that is what will have to happen. There there, there will have to be people who reject what what they are being told their role is. And, and I, I I think that that will happen. I think that that part is spot on, really, because you will need people, whatever form the moment takes, you will need people just like those soldiers who are supposed to do one thing and go against that order. If that was the power of that moment was depicting how people, you're right, we would need people in the armed forces to to stand with the people and stand against their bosses. What happens in the movie is they're sieging a building, they stop for one second, which I'm saying is something that would never happen. <laughs> and then they go back to sieging. I think that would maybe be more powerful if, okay, they stop sieging and... I mean, they are then fired upon. For sure, that um, goes back to my I'm point not, I'm of, not trying once to again, lefties were shot first. This takes us back to our conversation about Parasite, about the way we can look at a film from different angles. Definitely, yeah. And depending on what we bring to the table we can see something that is more left than the average person will see. But I want to build on Davis's point. It would be hard for a right winger to see this film in a positive light or to see the state depicted in a positive light. The state is definitely depicted in a horrific light. And the film does that via the way they show us treating the Fugees. And then a lot of what was happening at the time is incorporated into the film. So as you all probably noticed, the Abu Ghraib scandal that occurred in 2004 included those horrific images of Iraqi detainees that were grotesquely abused by US soldiers. And we see when they're on the bus that you see some of those images. So you see some of the images of the Fugees who have been hooded and are standing in the same formation as those horrific images. So the film is showing you the state is carrying out torture. The state is not good. And in fact, I would argue the worst, the most corrupt character in the film is not Luke. And it's not the fishes. The character that's depicted the worst, but maybe this is my own prejudice. But who would you all say I would assign the most villainous act in the film? Who would you think I think is the most disgusting in the film? I think it's probably the fascist pig guy. That's correct. Well, we might, that's well, we might bringing the weed into the uh, refugee camp. That's right. The person that we might call an INS ICE agent, the cop who works with immigration enforcement on behalf of the state, he is disgusting to me because when he discovers the miracle of life before him, what does he say? How can I capitalize on this? I mm-hmm. still see you both as commodities. He says both groups, both groups will want this, and I can basically play them off each other. I mean, that's his. That's his first. I can make the most money off both of you. He conveys that they are commodities to be sold. And to Quaron's credit, he depicts the Fuji encampment in all sorts of ways. But when these individuals who are probably engaging in some sort of illicit act, like that old godfather-like figure, when these people see the baby, they say, how can I help? This is a miracle. This is beautiful. And I think that's where Corona is showing us that even people who engage quote unquote bad activity sometimes can still be humane at heart. And I think that is actually the egalitarian powerful aspect of the film that I like. And this ties back to those soldiers. As Davis is saying, I think those soldiers have hearts. 
They're human beings. And the challenge for us is to try to win them over to these kinds of ideas. And I think in that scene where they decide to call a ceasefire, when they see the baby, Corona's telling us that these people are still human beings. And I think that is a, that's a powerful message. That's not a message I disagree with. I disagree with the way it was portrayed. I agree with the message and what you just said. I just don't think that's what he's successfully conveying. I see. Because to me, that doesn't happen mid-siege and then continuing on. And because ultimately, I see how he can be like the most villainous, like maybe most disgusting. But Theo and Key are only there because they've been chased by the resistance. And so we're introduced to the fascist pig in like a moment of comedic relief as an escape from the from the hunt by the left organization. So individually, he's like the person who least has a soul, but I didn't see him as the primary antagonist. I kind of wonder how Caron himself sees Luke, because I, I, I do think the film is taking a position that's critical of Luke, and, and I I think that's fair, but I don't know. I, I, I didn't see Luke as like an unambiguously evil villain or something, right? I, I think it's kind of interesting that the movie does pick as sort of its central antagonist, someone who legitimately seems to want what is best for the future of the world. He really does want to protect Key and protect the child and make a better world. He just has a different vision of how to do that. And, and so I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of think it's interesting and, and maybe says something about his perspective on this, that, that he is, to me, a little bit sympathetic to Luke in, in the way the film is written and made. I think to connect what Gabe said earlier and what Davis, you're saying now, I agree with Gabe, and this is where I began my commentary about this film, that the film leaves me feeling that the left is not to be trusted because as Gabe articulated, one of the main leftist leaders is Luke, who is depicted as somebody who assassinated Julian because she was willing to give the baby to the human project, while Luke believes the baby is a unifier that will unite the left, that will bring all the diverse tendencies of the left together and will make them feel that a, a new world is possible and that they can unite and defeat the government, which is this fascistic state that needs to be destroyed. A new world is needed in this model here. It's absolutely, there's an urgency. It has to happen. And I think Luke is being driven by the urgency of the brutality of the fascist British state. State. That all said, because he has Julian assassinated, because he is driven to find Theo and the baby at all costs, because he executes Jasper in a very inhumane way when he shoots him in the hand, then he shoots him in the knee. He wasn't even questioning him at that point. It was almost as though he accepted that Jasper was not going to talk. So he wanted him to feel some pain before he executed him. And that starts showing me that Luke is damaged. So on the one hand, I agree that Luke is a complex figure that wants to create a better world. And I think he is being pushed by the fascistic side of the state. But I also think a liberal could watch this film and come away with feeling the left is horrible. We should not turn to the left. They're dangerous. And they will assassinate their own leaders, their own co-conspirators. They will resort to any means necessary, as they might say, to achieve their end. And I think that's what's dangerous. Go ahead, Gabe. There's a moment where I took Poirot to be making a argument that terrorism is an instrument deployed by the state to pacify you know, its population so that they accept more uh, surveillance and so on. And then Theo is talking to Julian, and I thought that point was being reinforced where he says, 
well, what about the bombings? And the left person says, oh, we don't bomb. And he goes, Liverpool? And the left goes, well, we stopped bombing after 2000 and whatever <laughs> year. So, okay, so the left actually does bomb. And that commentary that I thought you were making really isn't as, as strong. I mean, I could see a lot of non-Marxists, non-radicals, even non-progressives seeing what you're telling us are the pitfalls of the film. But as a radical, what I saw was that the left learned from its ultra-militant tactics and began retreating from them when it saw that there would be too many civilian casualties. And I'm reminded of the classic lines in films like Battle of Algiers. If you guys have seen that film, which is a film we should talk about at some point, that's what I saw there. I don't know if I saw it as much of a condemnation of Luke or of the fishes, but you seem to see that as criticism of the fishes, right? You're thinking that's kind of foreshadowing that the fishes are going to turn to be the enemy or something. Right. That early in the film. It establishes them as uh there's a term for like unreliable uh interlock uh, unreliable narrator. Uh, yeah, that, that unreliable uh narrator that, that the guy forcefully says we do not bomb, and then in the next uh sentence is saying he does. Which granted this is a debate or uh, evolution that's happened in various movements for liberation and in different contexts. But in a movie that takes place in Great Britain, especially, but here too, one of the strongest stereotypes of left-wing activists is violent terrorists or violent insurrectionists. So to confirm that or to promote that, I think, is a decision that he made. And I think one that, uh, yeah, that I disagree with. It kind of makes me think, isn't it weird that people love V for Vendetta, which is ultimately about an extreme version of terrorism against the state in Britain? Right. People, uh, people are very forgiving of that guy. And, and I think part of it is probably that in V for Vendetta, V doesn't have very particular or very explicit politics despite the fact that Alan Moore, who wrote it, is uh, an anarchist. V doesn't really give any actual politics other than being anti-authoritarian. But yeah, It's interesting. I saw that movie a little bit differently than... You should probably say that for our V podcast, though. <laughs> I was just going to add, in V for Vendetta, his target is an empty parliament, not a full parliament, correct? I don't believe it's full of people when he blows it up. I'm almost positive right. it's not. And therefore, when you're so-called terrorist act involves no casualties, it's basically an act of destruction against private property. And I think right. that's always easier to accept than when any humans die. On the same point, John, you're right that this is the degree to which a movement is militant is a real question, but the, no, no alternative is given to the actions of the of the fishes there, you know, it's, it's not, okay, we, we're not, we're going to be less militant. We're going to organize unions more. And, and in fact, they're still kidnapping people in broad daylight and putting hoods over them. So, okay, I, I guess we're supposed to take them at the word that they've stopped bombing people, but they're still in clandestine doing something illegal or they uh, wouldn't be treating citizens the way they treated Theo when he, when he first interacts with them. 
Maybe actually your comment there is is a way for us to go back a little bit to the way we each are seeing Luke uh, EG4, because I find him as an actor to be pretty amazing. I'm actually a big fan of a lot of his earlier movies. Definitely. I don't know if you all ever saw Red Belt, a David Mamet film. David Mamet's the one who brought us uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, Wag the Dog, but he has a film called Red Belt. And in that film, EG4 plays a very skilled martial artist who lives with a code of honor in an honorless world and he plays a complex character. And I find when he plays villains, as he did in Josh Whedon's Serenity in 2005, I'm not sure if you all watched Firefly or Serenity, if you guys are fans. So I was a big fan of Firefly and I watched the entire series and I was a, I watched Serenity, which I really liked. And he plays the government assassin in Serenity. And the way he does it is almost the way he plays Luke here. That is, I did not see him as an evil man. I did not see him as somebody who wants to harm the world or who wants to harm the child or who wants to harm Key or who even wants to kill Theo. I saw him as a man who is making military-like decisions about what he believes needs to be done in order for the left to defeat a fascist state. Now, that's how I saw him. And yet then at times I saw him resort to vicious acts of violence, especially in his treatment of Jasper, for example. That really put me off. So I saw him as a complex character. And I didn't see him as the incredible villain that many mainstream audience members may see him as. But I guess that's my question for both of you. Did you see him as a villain? And would you say that a mainstream audience would see him as a villain? I want to know how you guys see Luke. That'll help to clarify this conversation about the way the fishes as a whole are being depicted to us and what we can see as the way the left is being depicted to us. Because as Gabe's telling us, Luke is the main protagonist of the left. Mm -hmm. And therefore, how we interpret him is very important for how we interpret the left. What do you all think? I view Luke favorably because I'm sympathetic of doing whatever it takes by any means necessary to, you know, eliminate injustice and suffering from the world. Um, That's unfortunately (laughs) not a mainstream view. So yeah, I'm looking at Luke from how do people in everyday movie theaters walk away feeling about the left, not how I personally feel about Luke's character. I want to hear, I mean, Dave, am I wrong to say Luke is a tanky, right? That's the idea. <laughs> Luke is a tanky. Yeah. And, and so that's what the film is showing us. We have a tanky, and then we have maybe a Trotskyite on the other side of that. Uh, Julianne's the Trotskyite. Well, I, I guess I'm, I again, am kind of thinking about it through that environmental lens. And maybe that shapes the way that I, my, my willingness to look for the positives in Luke. But thinking about it in environmental terms, again, I don't really believe in a climate solution under capitalism. I think that we can't actually solve the climate crisis through the mechanisms of capitalism. And so if we if we see kind of the baby as the the climate solution, I'm very sympathetic to Luke's concern that the right and the state will try and fail to put this possible climate solution into practice and that that will then result in ultimate failure. And so, yeah, I, I think I think maybe when I'm looking at him through that lens, I'm a little more sympathetic to Luke than other people, even though I'm not a tanky. Um, but it's, uh, I don't know. Well, it seems this is a good point to segue into our final commentaries. And here I want to build on Gabe where you and I began, which was we both see that the film does an excellent job of showing us the way a fascistic capitalist state is so brutal in its treatment of immigrants slash refugees. But what films like this seem to never be able to do is give us any kind of explanation as to why those refugees 
are in those spaces to begin with. And this actually reminds me of, of a number of television shows and films that I watch about Americans who travel into third world countries that are often considered quote unquote unstable, quote unquote dictatorship-like. I actually just saw a clip with the late Anthony Bourdain in Myanmar, and he goes around and he's pretty sympathetic to the plight of the people there, as many commentators like him can be. But the questions they never ask are the questions this film doesn't ask that could have been addressed via the characters to at least inform some of our understanding of why those refugees are there. Let me tell you the three questions that liberals never seem to be able to raise. Given that your country, your state government is very authoritarian, where does it get its weapons from? They never interrogate where the weapons are coming from. Two, what are your main natural resources and which corporations trade in those natural resources? Who's profiting from them? And if you notice, I didn't say who owns them. It's not about owning them. It's about who's controlling the trade, who's profiting from your natural resources. That question will never be discussed in any kind of liberal assessment of a third world country called a dictatorship. And the last important question, which is they never address, in your country, do your political parties receive donations from other countries? Do your political parties, especially those that are currently in power, do they receive funds from nonprofits based in the first world? Do they receive funds directly from other governments? That kind of conversation is not had. So you won't hear about weapons, you won't hear about natural resources and who's profiting off of them, and you won't hear about direct payments to those right-wing governments, political parties, from the so-called democracies of the first world. You won't hear about any of that. So this film will not have any commentaries between the characters to give us a sense of why are immigrants like he there in England. And this doesn't have to be central to the film, but it would add so much to checking the stereotypical mainstream understanding of why people from the third world migrate to the first, which is an incredibly problematic narrative that ends up legitimizing a lot of oppression. That's my final comment on the film. I really like it. I think we should watch it and we should discuss it. And I think there's a lot here that's very rich, but I agreed where Gabe began by saying that's a blind spot in the film that I wish would have been there. Gabe, Gabo, what about you? Any film that deals with these issues that are just often ignored, I'm going to appreciate and encourage us and other, others to watch. But I also think that means we should critically engage with these films. And just as John is really well stating how the film has a blind spot in immigration, I also think it has a huge blind spot in the way it deals with um, the ways we resist oppression, on the way it deals with terrorism, and how we, how we get to a world in where this kind of society isn't dystopian. So yeah, the, this might, this, it may be that you know, we're not filmmakers, but maybe that's the cost of getting this film into Hollywood. And, and maybe that's the calculation that directors are making to make it worth it. Okay, we'll show how awful capitalism is. In order for it to be released, we have to give a nod to reactionary ideas about, about the left. Because ultimately, this film does show the people trying to improve society being almost just as bad as the people who are enforcing this dystopic society. And this is like one other thing that we didn't really talk about, and I don't want to start a whole other. I know this is our, our last comment, but the complexity seemed to be doled out to every character and to some extent, except for Key, the mother. Why, why wasn't she the protagonist? Even I love Clive Owen. I, I think he's a brilliant actor and, and one of the real bright spots of this film. But um, in, in this global system, African women, women of all nations of the global South are strongly its victims. But in throughout history, and even now, are also strongest resistors. They don't just 
need somebody to come around <laughs> and show them how, how to um, save their lives across the globe. I mean, I'm thinking about the strikes being organized right now in India. India. Those are female-led, powerful movements against the same kind of oppression as that's being depicted in this film. And we never get any sense of that uh, from the way Key is depicted. She's just innocent, uh, one-dimensional little girl that uh, Clive Owen has to to shepherd around. So I, I, I know my... My takes of this film are <laughs> sounding very negative. I, I still really loved it, and pe- people people should go watch it so we can have these kinds of interesting dire- discussions about where we think it goes wrong. What, what about you, Davis? What's what's your final I, final take? I, I think we should leave it there. <laughs> okay. I think I think that's actually uh, a really really good point, and I'm I'm glad that you brought it up, and I think it's kind of a good way to conclude. Okay, guys. Well, then that's a wrap. Since I've raised the bar so high, I've been, and I, you know, it's been some cool music because you haven't heard, you know, crowd rock in a long time. When was the last time you heard Japanese jazz? Did you know there was Japanese jazz? You probably thought it was Japanese karaoke. No, there is Japanese jazz, and one of the hottest Japanese jazz groups is called Pistol Jazz which is kind of what attracted me to, you know. I come across a name like that, I said, come on, I gotta listen to these guys' music. Pistol Jazz.